soul and the spirit, you know, are those the same thing? And I think we've basically determined that uh, indeed they are not the same thing, that they are two parts of a, of a three-part whole. And what I want to do tonight is look a little bit farther into what the differences are. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the spirit specifically tonight. Um, and let me grab this remote while I'm waiting for the PowerPoint to come up. But what we're really trying to get to is what are the differences, but also what are the similarities, because as with God, and we're made in God's image, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know, they're, they're separate beings within one cohesive whole, but they are one cohesive whole, right? So they overlap. You know, they share some of the same attributes. They share some of the same uh, ways of being, and that's the way we are too. You know, even though we're body, soul, and spirit, we share with our soul and spirit, our body, soul, and spirit all share some similar attributes and overlap in certain ways. And so this kind of reaffirms uh, the way that we are made in God's image. Now, what I wanted to get, do is head on, let me go forward a little bit and get toward the end. I think we already talked about Ruach. And now we're talking about Numa. And Numa is another word that is used for spirit. Um, it's the Greek word that's used in the New Testament. And it's used in its various forms 406 times throughout the New Testament. Uh, first, the New Testament writers carry on the precedent set by the translators of the Septuagint by using the Greek words for wind, such as animus, instead of Numa. Now, the only instance where pneuma definitely refers to the wind is in John chapter 3 and verse 8, where there's a poetic play upon the sovereign movement of the divine spirit and the wind. So, in that instance, it's actually translated as wind, but it's using it as an analogy to the way the spirit moves. Uh, second, pneuma refers to the life principle which animates the body. This is actually a very rare usage in the New Testament. For example, the false prophet who accompanied the Antichrist in the last days will make an idol alive. And that's in Revelation thirteen fifteen. So it's used many different ways and in a lot of the same ways that Ruach is used in the Old Testament. And in some similar ways to the way soul or suke uh, is used in the New Testament. Third, pneuma is used to describe the immaterial nature of God and angels in John 4.24 and Hebrews 1.14. And Christ is also defined as a spirit or ghost or an immaterial being in Luke 24.39. So whenever Jesus has been resurrected, he's actually referred to as a spiritual person in that sense. Uh, fourth, pneuma refers to the disposition which characterizes a person, such as pride, humility, fear, and other types of characteristics of people. You can see that in 1 Peter 3 and verse 4. And fifth, pneuma is used to describe the discarnate spirit or soul of man after death. And there are quite a few references to this. Matthew twenty-seven fifty, 
Luke 24, 37 and 39, John 19, 30, Acts 7, 59, Hebrews 12, 23, 1 Peter 3, 19. So there's quite a bit of scripture that goes very in-depth on how people are after they die. Uh, well, I guess you could say, you know, the spirit and soul being actually separated from the physical body. So sixth, man's transcendent self or ego is also called pneuma because of its immaterial and invisible nature. We see that in 1 Corinthians 2.11. It's described as the center of man's emotions, intellect, and will. We see that in Mark 8.12, Mark 2.8, and Matthew 26.41. So since man's pneuma transcends his mere physical life, it's frequently contrasted to his body or his flesh. Um, it's a man's pneuma that actually ascends to God, his spirit that goes back to God at death. We see that in Acts 7.59. So, as you can see, there, compared to what we talked about with the soul, or suke, uh, in our last class, many of the same attributes are applied to the spirit as well. So there's this overlap that occurs between these two things. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, there's some key differences and similarities that we can, we can see with these two attributes. Of course, first, as we talked about last time, the soul and spirit are spoken of as two separate parts of people in Scripture, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. We talked about you know, the three parts of human beings, um, body, soul, and spirit. Um, something that I wanted to bring up, after the lesson uh, last Wednesday, Derek came up and we were talking a lot about, uh, discussing a lot about that analogy that uh, was made between human beings and, and God. And the fact that being created in God's image, uh, as referenced in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we are three parts of one whole. And what I'd like to do, uh, Joey, if you could do me a favor, I, I put a PDF that Derek actually made up in uh, an email to you. If you could bring that up for me on the screen, I'd really appreciate it. And I was really impressed at the work Derek did. I, I didn't mean, really, I wasn't aiming to get as far in depth as, as he did on this slide, but I thought it was so good that I really wanted to show it tonight to give you an idea of kind of where I was coming from because really the things that he brings up in that particular file are things that i have been going over in my study for the last uh, weeks and, and, and amount of time. Will it come? Will it display okay, Joey? Or you having any? You almost got it. Okay, he's getting it there. But basically, um, the idea is, of course, that you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you go back and look at those three persons within the Godhead. They have certain attributes within the three of them. We see this throughout Scripture. We see how those, what I would like to show on this slide, if we can bring it up, is the fact that within those three attributes, there is sort of a crossing of those over to us as human beings. Um, when Brother Gene Connor came up after the lesson last Wednesday, we were talking about it, and I said, if I, you know, we're going to sort of make an equivalency between God and man, as far as the three parts are concerned, I would say God is like the soul. The Holy Spirit is like the spirit. And then Jesus would be equivalent to the body. 
Now, yeah, we may have to scroll around on this a little bit, but you can kind of see the, the good work that Derek did here putting this together. And I think he's still doing some work on it, but it's not finished. This is kind of a preliminary look at what he's been doing with this. But as you can see, you know, we mentioned in Genesis 1.26 that let us make man in our image. Now, our, of course, refers to the triune nature of God, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, making man in his own image. And if we look at the three parts that are mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, you have the pneuma, the psyche, psyche, or suke, and soma, which if you were to uh, try to make an equivalency between those, we have some scripture references down below that kind of show or give an idea of how you could draw a parallel between each of those three persons of God and each of the three persons of a human being as well. And see very clearly how indeed, yes, we are made not in just the image of God from a soul or spirit standpoint, but in all three distinct ways. Yet, still crossing over into each other as a whole, complete being. So the spirit, you know, who you are, is brought up as spirit, wind, the vital principle which the body is animated. Um, some of these things he found in Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Uh, Matthew twenty six forty one. the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When someone had an unclean spirit, they were not themselves. So we see some attributes of what the soul is to us, or the spirit is to us, and what the spirit is to the image of God, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Also, psyche, the seat of feelings and desires, and the Father. And then finally, the body and the image of God we see there, most equivalent would be the Son. So, still kind of a work in progress, but it gives you a good idea, or a much, hopefully much better idea, of what I was trying to get at last time, and a little bit more depth than the way I'd presented it before. All right, you can take that one down. Let's go back to uh, the next, uh, back to the end of the lesson. Uh, second, the soul is defined as the part of the person that gives the person his or her personhood. The spirit is that possession of a person that endows that person with life. It's a life-giving force, you might say, that allows us to actually have life and breath and to live here on earth. Of course, we read before uh, in James, the body without the spirit is dead as faith without works is dead. Um, one more slide. I had a slide for intermediate state that I wanted to show real quick, Joey. It was also in the email that I sent. It's a PowerPoint slide. Um, the next point really deals with what we refer to as an intermediate state. Uh, the soul and spirit both live on after death, and we can only be known as an intermediate state in paradise or Hades, one of those two places. Therefore, both are immortal parts of the person. Both are eternal parts of the person that continue on after the body dies and they have left the body. Um, we can see this referred to in... Uh, it's a separate PowerPoint slide, by the way, Joey. The, we can see this referred to in the uh, story of the rich man, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, as Jesus tells it. Of course, we know that whenever the two of them die... Uh, Lazarus goes to what is termed the bosom of Abraham, or also paradise, as Jesus references on the cross. Okay. As Jesus references on the cross, 
to, you know, with a criminal, he says, this day you will be with me in paradise. So it is a place where the soul and the spirit go, paradise, if they have been faithful in life. Uh, On the converse side of that, you have Hades, also referred to as Gehenna in some areas. And we see that the rich man, of course, went to Hades, and his soul and spirit resided there in torment. Now, to give a little bit better idea, because we know that when Jesus was raised from the, from the grave, he was raised to a resurrected body, right? And a body that continued on and ascended to heaven. Now, whenever we die, and whenever Jesus died, whenever anyone dies, the soul and the spirit go somewhere. It's either going to go to Hades, to an intermediate state, and exist there until it's rejoined with its resurrected body at the day of judgment and then sent to wherever it's going to go for eternity. Or the converse, which would be the soul spirit going to paradise, where it will exist in that intermediate state until it is rejoined with its resurrected body and become a three-part person again and then go on to heaven to exist there for eternity. Now, in studying this, I really didn't grasp this very well until I kind of started going through Scripture and seeing these different, these different facts about how this all plays out. But this diagram, and they also, uh, Apologetics Press has a very similar one that Derek showed me last Sunday evening. This is one that I came up with on my own before I ever seen that one, so it may not be quite as clear as the one AP did. But um, Rob, who did that? that design, that video Bible school, that gives you a good breakdown. It's basically the same thing as this. It just shows it in a linear fashion rather than in a cyclical fashion like I'm showing it here. But it gives us a good idea of what our destiny is. And that's where I'm kind of trying to get to now is the destiny of the soul. Now, if this is confusing, I can kind of understand. But if you have any questions, please feel free to come ask me afterward. We can look it up in the Bible. I can show you all these things. I didn't want to get too in-depth at it. I want to kind of give you a little bit of an introduction as to the cycle, what I call the cycle of the soul, um, from earth to death to an intermediate state to a reconjunction with, the, with a resurrected body and then to eternal uh, life or punishment which we will talk about in later lessons. So basically what it comes down to is we can't live without our soul and our spirit. When, those soul, when that soul and that spirit are gone, this body will die. It will begin to deteriorate and will not be resurrected until that day when it is brought back in uh, conjunction with its soul and spirit as a resurrected body that will live forever in one place or another, either in heaven or in punishment. All right, so that finishes up on this lesson. Let's go on to lesson four. I'm going to try to get through this one. It's kind of a short one, so hopefully we'll be able to get through it tonight. This one is uh, about where the soul originates. So have you ever wondered about where your soul, you, your innermost being originates? Where does it come from? Did your soul exist after your body was conceived or before? Or was it created and instilled at the very point of conception? 
What kind of body or bodies do we have? Well, these and other questions are some that come to mind when we wonder about where we actually came from, where we originated. Um, Hello? Maybe like this way? Oh, that way? Just hit forward for me, Joey. There we go. All right. I was going to get there eventually. These things are not my friend. These clickers, I've, I've used these things lots, lots of different kinds of clickers, and they never seem to work for me. So uh, we'll just, we're just remain enemies, and that's okay. Um, so these are a few of the questions that we just talked about. But the difference between the body, soul, and spirit... Of course, as we mentioned in the last lesson. So there's a difference between the soul and the spirit, obviously. As we discussed previously, we have three parts, the body, soul, and spirit. And we have a physical part and two spiritual parts. Now, when God created Adam in Genesis 2 and verse 7, we see that he instilled within Adam physical life. The text here states, Jehovah God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Nefesh Chayah. This passage describes the creation and animation of the physical person. Okay? Now, for us to understand that, you know, we, we have to back up and go, okay, um, who, who, what was God trying to do here? What kind of life was he trying to give to this man? Well, if we look over in 1 Corinthians 15... 44 through 45, we can kind of see a little bit differentiation here. Paul writes in reference to this passage, If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. Referring back to the Genesis 2, 7 passage. The differentiation here is between the mortal and fleshly nature of man and his spiritual nature. This is a very important distinction when referring to the difference between man and animals, as animals have a spirit of life the same as we do, but they don't have a soul. And no reference do we ever see that any of the rest of the creation except for man, as God's special creation, was endowed with a soul. There are six additional places in the Old Testament where similar phraseology is employed. And in each case, the text obviously is speaking of members of the animal kingdom. In Genesis 1.24, God said, Let the earth bring forth creatures, or nefesh chayah, after their kind. Genesis 1.30 records that God provided plants as food to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, or nesmoth chayah, When the Genesis flood covered the earth, God made a rainbow covenant with Noah and with every living creature, Nefesh Chayah, that was with him in the ark in Genesis 9, 12. And I think this is interesting to highlight that God actually is making promises, not just to man in this instance, but to the entire creation, to his entire creation. God made this promise. God pledged that he would remember the covenant he made with every living creature in Genesis 9, 12. And therefore, 
he never again would destroy the earth by such a flood. The rainbow, he stated, would serve as a reminder that, of that everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. Nefesh Chayah in Genesis 9.15. The final occurrence of the phrase is found in Ezekiel's description of the river flowing from the temple in which every living creature, Nefesh Chayah, that swarms will live. And that's Ezekiel 47 and verse 9. So we see here again the difference that's placed between man and the rest of God's creation, but also that God loves his creation, that he loves what he has created, and he promises to restore that creation, to keep that creation. While both creatures are referred to as Nefesh Chayah, the scriptures make it clear that God did something special in reference to man. And of course, we saw that before in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. And again, I can't really stress this enough about how we are made in God's image. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Nowhere else, nowhere else in the Bible does it state or imply that animals are created in the image of God. We hold a very special place in creation. And as a result, we have a very special responsibility as privileged beings in God's creation. Just some key thoughts on man's immortal nature. First off, as seen above, man possesses an immortal nature, an eternal nature. Animals do not. This is very important to remember as we are given a great privilege and responsibility as image bearers of God. Now, what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? I can refer you back to what we've already talked about previously in that, of course, yes, we are created body, soul, and spirit. I think that has a lot to do with how we are bearing God's image. How else do we bear God's image to creation? Did I hear somebody say something? How about the gospel? Are we bearing God's image when we, when we try to preach the gospel? We're bearing the Son to creation, aren't we? We're bearing at least a part of God's image to creation when we preach the gospel. As image bearers of God, as people made in God's image, bearing God's image, we have a huge responsibility, don't we? We have an amazing responsibility. Sometimes a crushing responsibility to bear that image before his creation and to bring him to all people. God himself is a spirit. We see in John 4.24. And a spirit does not have flesh and bones. As we see in Luke 24.39. 
again, we have to look at this and realize that there's this immortal nature. There's something more about us than we see in ourselves and in other people a lot of times. It's a realization that we have to take very seriously because with that immortal or eternal nature comes not only responsibilities but also a few dangerous things. Some dangerous things we'll talk about in some other lessons. The most dangerous of them being, of course, hell, everlasting punishment. And as we all know, that's no joke. It's a very serious thing. Brother Gene. Absolutely. Go, go ahead. Absolutely. Brother Gene was saying to remain in God's image, we have to reflect God's image and do his will. Which is exactly, you know, he says, uh, or Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, right? You'll obey me if you love me. And that is definitely a, a way to be an image bearer of God. It's through obedience. In addition to the other things we talked about. Now, in some fashion, when it comes right down to it, God has placed within us a portion of his own essence in the sense that we possess a spirit that will never die. The prophet Zechariah spoke of Jehovah who stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth and forms the spirit, ruach in Hebrew, of man within him. That's in Zechariah 12 and verse 1. The Hebrew word for forms or formeth, yatsar, is defined as to form, fashion, or shape as in a potter working with clay. So again, as mentioned before in a previous lesson, in some instances, the Hebrew, especially back in uh, when it talks about God creating all living things, or man becoming a living soul, sometimes is translated as a living creature or something that has been created, something that has been formed. Now, some folks might go, well, how do you create, how do you form, how do you, you know, fashion something that's spiritual? Well, we don't. Of course, we have a formed, fashioned, you know, body, physical body, um, and of course, I, that was formed and fashioned by God. Um, we know that you know through the form, you know, the coming together of the sperm and the egg in, in the in vitro or in the womb. That of course the body does eventually form out of that, but that didn't just come up by itself, as we well know. But when it comes down to the formation of something spiritual, something outside the bounds of what we can sense with our eyes and with our ears and, and mouths and so on and so forth, we have also been formed, created, made as a creature in a spiritual form by God himself. As the creator, God initiates the object we know as man's immortal nature, his soul or his spirit. We see him actually forming us putting us together in a spiritual way. How does he do that? I don't know exactly. But I think the scripture gives some good clues as to how that happens. Because in Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, and this is an important note, I think, the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit 
returns to God who gave it. That's in Ecclesiastes 12, 7. So when we die, these bodies, this form, this dirt and water we're made out of by God, what happens to it? It dissolves, doesn't it, over time? I mean, after hundreds of years, even your bones will eventually dissolve and turn back to dust. But what happens to the spirit? I love the way that it's put here. It returns 